Amen. Good morning, Canyon Hills. All right, y'all may be seated. We're continuing in our series from the book of Acts this morning, and we're going to start by reading off our passage. So if you would follow along with me from Acts chapter 21, verses 7 through 16, they're up on the screen or in your Bibles or on your phones as well. It starts by saying this, we continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we were greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. You know, there's no doubt in my mind that Paul knew exactly what it meant to march on in the name of Jesus Christ. If you had read the passage just slightly before this, you would have seen a very emotional and tender-hearted encounter between Paul and the Ephesian elders at Miletus. After spending a great deal of time with them, they grew really connected to Paul. They bonded with him. They loved being in his presence. They could feel the energy coming off of him. They could see the Holy Spirit moving as he started to share this gospel message throughout the land. And so when he told them that he had to leave them and head to Jerusalem, they were grieved. They were saddened in their hearts. So much so, it says that as Paul was walking down to the shoreline to get on the boat, they all followed him and they were begging with him and they were pleading with him, Paul, please do not go to Jerusalem. Paul, please do not go on your travels. And even when they got to the shoreline and Paul is boarding the boat, scripture says that they began to weep at Paul's departure. You see, the elders knew that this would be the last time they would see their beloved Paul. They had spent some time in prayer and they had spent some time discerning with the Holy Spirit. And what they realized as they prayed was the Holy Spirit showed them that if Paul were to go to Jerusalem, he would be bound, he would be captured, he would be arrested, he would be tried, and he'd be put to death. And they didn't want to see their beloved Paul. Even more than that, they knew that this gospel message was moving so powerfully throughout the land. They were afraid that if Paul got captured and killed, what happens to this movement? What happens to the power of the gospel that's happening right here, right now? So they begged with him and they pleaded with him, Paul, do not go. We have heard from the Holy Spirit. We have prayed. We know the danger that awaits you. You barely escaped all of these trials from thieves and robbers and burglars and marauders and shipwrecks and authorities and governments and nature, all of these things that have come against you that you've barely made it out with your life. But if you go to Jerusalem, this story will end much differently for you. You're going to die. So Paul, please do not go. But Paul knew he had to go. And so he almost has to force himself and push himself away from them to get on the boat to travel. See, because Paul knew that he had to get to Jerusalem regardless of the cost. 
because that's what it meant to him to march on in the name of the Lord. See, Paul had gone up and down the coastline preaching and teaching this amazing, powerful gospel message. And as he was doing so, he felt the Lord leading him to head back to his hometown of Jerusalem to start to share this message during the Passover celebration, a time when there would be so many people gathered that he could take this gospel message and take it to the next level to a bigger audience, a bigger crowd, to have a greater effect than what he has seen so far. So Paul knew that he had to get there no matter what the cost was to his life. See, for Paul, ever since his conversion, his life had been marked by both discernment of the Holy Spirit and the willingness to do what the Father had called him to do. And so there was no question whether or not he should go. He just went. And I'm sure through discernment and praying with the Holy Spirit, he knew exactly what awaited him. He knew that if he were to get to Jerusalem, that there would be death that awaited him. There would be capture. There would be suffering. There would be hardships. All of these things awaited him, but it was more important for him to march on to do the will of the Lord than to run away from it. And so he gets on this ship and they set seal toward, or set seal, set sail towards Jerusalem, towards Caesarea, where they'll have to walk the rest of the way. As we read in our passage this morning, this boat has to make several different stops. And like always, what Paul does best is every stop, he gets off the boat and he starts to interact with the people. He's preaching to them. He's teaching them. He's encouraging them. He's equipping them. He's training them. He's spreading the word of the gospel every opportunity he gets. So much so that even in this second audience, they too now have grown fond of Paul and are saying, Paul, we don't want you to leave. We love having you here. We can see lives being radically changed before our eyes because of this gospel message you're bringing. The power of the Holy Spirit that's moving in this land. Paul, we don't want you to go. But Paul once again says, I have to go. I have to do the will of my father. And so once again, as he's traveling back to the boat, says the men, the women, the children, the whole community in town follow Paul, begging him, pleading him, Paul, do not go. Paul, we've had visions. Paul, we've seen dreams. Paul, we've had prophecy. Paul, we've had discernment from the Holy Spirit. Paul, we know that if you go, you will die. Do not go. Can you just imagine for a moment what must have been going through Paul's head? Literally every single person he has encountered in the last couple days and everything has told him not to go to Jerusalem, has told him if you go, you will die. Paul has a big decision to make. Does he go and continue to march on to do the will of the Lord? Or does he stay where he's at in a comfortable spot and really just relax and take it easy and not do the will of God? You see, I think at some point in our lives, all of us can be like Paul and we have these big decisions to make. Maybe not to this extent, but there's a point in our life where we wrestle with an important decision and we wonder what God's will for our life is. I mean, we all at some point want to know just exactly how to know the will of God. I mean, wouldn't that make our lives easier if we knew what God wanted for us? And I'm sure this is kind of where Paul found himself in this moment. And he's got this big decision that he's wrestling with. Does he go and intentionally endure this moment of suffering or have to deal with this experience and push through it, knowing that his God is greater than that situation to get him through? Or does he retreat and stay where it's safe? See, usually when we're suffering, we run away. We don't want to go into it because it's too painful. It's too overwhelming. That's not our natural response. And we give up hope. You know, this week I had the, the pleasure and the honor to meet with Tim Jones, a, a member of our church family. And I got to hear his testimony. 
And I got to just share a little bit of time with him to hear about the power of God that moved through his life and through the suffering that he had to endure. And I have his permission, but we're going to share a little bit with you of, of the testimony of Tim Jones in our encounter. So if you could take a look at this. Hi, my name's Tim Jones. I've been coming to this church since 2005. I met my wife here and we got married here. I just wanted to go over with uh, one of the times that I've had that the Lord really, really spoke to me and, and helped me through a tough time. And that was um, after I got married to my beautiful wife, Debbie, um, I started having more and more stomach sickness and problems with my stomach. And it started out as a couple of days and then it worked into where it was a week. I was taking a week off from work. Then it got to where it was a couple of weeks a month. Um, it stopped me from doing my work and uh, worked its way into being Caesars um, and uncontrolled until up to six months ago. Now, at about six months ago, I stopped having Caesars because the medication was it started working out correctly for me. And um, during that time, I learned a, a whole lot about God as I do just about every day. And that was that um, for me to look forward and to keep going and to keep love before me and making sure that I wash myself daily in the word and pray all the time with my wife in the mornings and with myself all day long at different things I do. And it helped me to not only feel safer in the path I was going, but also to recognize the love that Jesus has out there by having me crash through the walls around me and just do things that I wouldn't normally do because God gave me the um, true love to go forward and just um, do different things in the church and throughout the community. And I found that um, it gets me through the little hardships that I have by seeing other people happy. Thank you. We have a God that can overcome even the most dire of situations and circumstances. A God that provides victory and healing when we need it the most. When we're struggling, a God that provides guidance and counsel and helps us even when we are facing the worst of situations in our life. Thank you, Tim, for being willing to share your testimony with us. Um, I'm inspired by you and just your, your life's devotion to pray every morning, every night, as you said. And I truly believe that if we became a nation that would pray more frequently, we would see a lot of these sufferings that we see around us in the world start to diminish. And I know that prayer is a word that is difficult for some people because it means different things to all people. But we need to pray. I need to pray. You need to pray. We all need to pray, not just talk about prayer or read about prayer, but actually pray like with words, with our mouths, with the things that we say, because we know that prayer is so good for us. But if prayer is so good for us, and if it's supposed to be something that's so simple, why is prayer one of the hardest things for us to do? Why is that? I mean, it's pretty much easier for us to do anything else in the world. We can go on missions trips. We can feed the homeless. We can give money to the poor. We can serve within our communities. We can come to church every single week. We can read our Bibles regularly. We can have these great theological discussions. But when it comes to spending five minutes in quality prayer, it's hard, like one of the hardest things for us to do. And we struggle. And it makes me wonder why. And I don't think it's because we don't know the importance of prayer, because we do. We tell people all the time, man, you really need to pray. You just need to bring the situation to the Lord. And yet we don't do that ourselves. So it's not that we don't know its importance. 
I don't think it's because we don't have time because let's be realistic, that's just a cop-out. You make time for the things that you value the most in your life. And if you aren't a person of prayer because you don't have time, that tells me that you don't find value in prayer. So it's not this time issue. It's not that we don't like to pray because realistically, every single one of us wants to have a true prayer experience. I'm talking about the kind of prayer that makes the hair stand up on your arm, that sends shivers down your spine, and you just get goosebumps because you can feel the power of the Holy Spirit moving in the room. If we could have that kind of prayer as easy as pushing a button or reading a specific passage, we would do whatever it takes to experience that. So it's not that we don't like to pray. So if it's none of these things, what is it? Well, as I prayed, what I came to realize is that it's because we live in a result-oriented mentality, that we've been ingrained in our culture and our society to have an immediate response. Did I pass? Did I fail? Was it a success? Was it a failure? Is it good? Is it bad? Will this help me? Will this hurt me? And we bring this mentality into our prayer life. And we sit down, we pray, and we say, God, I am just struggling right now. I don't know how we're going to make ends meet this month with bills and health and finances and school and sports and all these things. God, it's so overwhelming. I pray that you will provide. And when we open our eyes and there's not just a wad of $100 bills sitting on the table in front of us, we get angry. We get frustrated. God, why didn't you answer my prayer? God, why didn't you see the sincerity of my heart that this is what I need? And we get angry and we start to build up this hatred, this malice, this frustration, this bitterness, and this envy inside of our lives. And those moments, instead of releasing it over to the Lord and saying, God, I want you to take control of this because you know well better than I do. That was poor grammar. You know so much better than I do, Father. But why aren't you taking control of this? And we become frustrated. And in those moments, that when we start to see these internal struggles grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where we step away from God and say, I'm not going to pray anymore because I don't see its effect in my life. It doesn't do anything for me. What's the point of even praying? But what I found out and what I want to share with you this morning is I've come to realize in, in my time with the Lord is that prayer, it's not an act. It's not some magic show or trick that just magically appears. Prayer is a relationship. It's a relationship. It's a continual conversation. It's an openness. It's an honesty. It's a vulnerability. It's this confession. It's patience. It's trust. It's faith. And I know that word confession scares a lot of people, but there's one specific translation or definition I love of confession, and it means to call it like it is. And that's what God is saying. I want you to stop beating around the bush. I want you to stop sugarcoating things. And I want you to call it like it is. Bring your sins, bring your brokenness and lay them at my feet so I can take them from you. How many of us have that kind of a prayer life where we can every single day surrender ourselves, put our ego, put our pride aside to say, God, you are in control. Even though I may not see what's happening right now, even though danger and suffering awaits me, I know that you have something greater in store for me. And we release that to him. And we can start to feel him move within the brokenness and the sufferings of our lives. And I know that kind of a prayer is hard for us to do because that's not how we're wired to think. And so what I want to do this morning is we want to give you that time. We want to give you this space to have time to pray. And I know, like I said, prayer can be something that's very different, very awkward for some people. Maybe some people love to pray. Maybe some people hate to pray. But what's important here is to know that God puts value in prayer and so should we. And God wants us to pray with him. 
we're going to sing a song here in just a minute that's going to kind of help us to, to set the mindset, to set the mood, just to enter into the presence of the Lord because he's already here and he's just waiting for you to respond to him. And then afterwards, we're going to have a time of prayer and I'm not going to be up here. There's going to be nobody leading it. It's just going to be a time between you and the Lord and you can stand, you can sit, you can lay in the aisleway. You can talk out loud. You can pray silently by yourself with the person next to you, your eyes open, your hands folded, your eyes closed. You can sketch on your notes. I know some people receive prayer and communicate to God that way, which is why your notes outline says notes slash sketches, because we wanted to give you that space. This is your time to say, God, I'm ready to intentionally make a declaration today that your will be done. God, that this brokenness this hurt, this frustration, this suffering, this pain, these financial worries, this doubt, this fear. God, I'm specifically bringing these things and laying them at your feet because I want you to be in control. I want you to have power. And maybe you're at a place where this whole new Christian thing is brand new to you. Maybe you're trying to figure it all out. And that's when this prayer then becomes, God, I pray that you just help reveal yourself to me. Help me decipher what to do next. Where do I go? God, maybe I've grown distant from you. God, maybe I'm confused about what you want from me. This is what this prayer is for. It's to center your life, to center your heart, to give it to God so we can respond like Paul did and say, I know it's God's will that I continue to march on even in the face of my sufferings and my persecution, my opposition, my health, my frustrations, my doubts, my worries, my fears, my financial failures, whatever it may be, that God is there that God wants to help, but he's waiting for you to bring it to him. So as we enter into this time, I pray that you just don't take this lightly. I plead with you, I beg of you, just like the Ephesian elders did, to enter into this time of prayer with the mindset of surrender, saying, God, I'm gonna let down my walls and I'm gonna bring it all to you. So with that, would you all stand up as we enter into the song and then after some time has passed, through our prayer time, I'll come back up here and finish our message this morning.
For some of you, that may have been the longest five minutes of your life. For others, it may have seemed like time stood still. We serve a God who is bigger than our sufferings, than our situations, than our circumstances, a God who wants to set you free from what's holding you back, a God who wants you to declare victory in the name of whatever's pressing you down or whatever you're holding on so tightly to that you're afraid to let go of, or whatever ego was built up or pride over something, a decision, or whatever it may be in your life, we have a God who wants you to surrender every single day to him so he can help you overcome these things. You know, as our passage continues on, it said, or repeating it, it says, when we heard this, we and all the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, look at his response. Why are you weeping? In breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. You know, one of the most fascinating things that I see in this story is that even though everybody and everything was telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, he still marched on. He still pressed through, and his willingness, his boldness to go is not just a testament, but it's an example to each and every one of us of the power that comes with the gospel. That no danger, no threat of death, no suffering, no hurt, no pain, no sorrow, no doubt, no fear, no worry, even stands a chance compared to the power that comes when you believe in Jesus Christ. And when they saw this power inside of Paul claiming victory and saying, I'm not afraid I'm willing to do whatever it is that you want me to do, Lord. They looked at him and said, God, your will be done. And it makes me think, how many of us can look at the situations and the sufferings of our life and respond in that manner? With whatever it is that you're going through right now, whatever brokenness or hurt or betrayal or fear, or frustration, doubt, worry, whatever it is in your life that you can truly look at it and say, God, your will be done. To get to a place of total surrender where you can fall on your knees and say, God, I'm putting aside my pride. I'm putting aside my ego. I'm ready to let go of control and give it to you because you know better. Father, you know best. You know me better than I even know myself. And I surrender that control to you. See, that's the kind of life that I strive to have every single day. Because to me, that's what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know that because Jesus even told us the importance of this. If you look at when he taught us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, in the very second line, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. See, Jesus even modeled it right out the gate for us. He says that whenever you come and you pray to God, no matter the situation in your life, how big, how small, how important you feel that it is, bring it to God and ask that his will be done in it. Because if you do this, if you surrender it to God and God chooses to decide to do it in his will, you will find this peace that surpasses all understanding. A freedom that comes that is able to lift off the burdens, to lift off those strongholds that are pressing you down and set you free from what captivates you. And that's what God wants to give to us. He says, when you come and when you just fall on your knees and you bring it before me and you repent or you ask forgiveness or you confess, that's you surrendering control. Surrendering it that God can start to move. 
I can't help but think of the relationship between a parent and a child. You know, when you were growing up, if you wanted to do something or if you wanted to go somewhere, you'd have to ask your parent for permission. And your parent would look at you and they would say either yes or no, depending upon their will. And their will was predicated upon how well they knew you, what would hurt you, what would help you, what would be good for you, what would be bad for you, what you really needed and what you didn't, and based off of how much they loved you. That they would never want to see any hurt or harm or anything happen to you. And they expected that you would always come and ask permission for these things and then respond in obedience when a decision was made, whether it be a yes, no, or not yet. I think that this is a great earthly picture of our heavenly relationship, our Father. God's our Father and we are his children and he wants us to come before him and say, God, I am surrendering these things to you. God, I'm tired of holding on to them. I'm tired of being weighed down by them and I'm ready to march on. And I pray that you help me through this. And in that moment when you say, God, your will be done is when he starts to move the mountains of your life. And you don't actually have to say that specific phrase, God, your will be done in your prayers, but it's all about the heart, about that total surrender, even in the face of the worst moments of suffering in your life. You know, I talk about her a lot, but my wife Tiffany, as most of you know, has struggled a lot with illness for most of her life. And when I think of someone who has gotten to a point of true surrender, to say, God, I'm gonna stop fighting with my own will because it does no good, and release it to let you take control. And I'm just along for the ride. Tiffany is the one that comes to my mind. And so I've asked her to share a little bit today with us about her testimony and how she chooses to let the Lord's will be done. So as far as my mom says, from the age of four months, I have suffered my, with my health. And through my life, it's been one thing after another. And I, when I was younger, it was all digestive, and it's still today, digestive issues. But when I got into high school, I would get sick periodically. I wouldn't feel good after eating. And I would be sitting in class, and the teacher was like, hey, you can only go to the bathroom twice a semester. And that was killing me. So I'd have to sit in class and just wait it out and just hold on to everything and be like, okay, God, get me through this class. Get me to lunch. Get me after. Growing up, out of high school, at the age of 19, I ended up having to get my gallbladder taken out. All the tests, everything that they did, everything showed up negative, but when they took it out, they realized it was chronically inflamed. Then I realized when I was ten, or not eight years old, I was told that I was lactose intolerant, so I went off of dairy for 10 years. Then at 18, my grandparents were like, hey, your grandpa is gluten intolerant, maybe you should go off gluten too. So I went off gluten as well. And by the age of 21, my pain got so overwhelming, I had to stop working and had to be on leave and just stay at home, be put on pain med after pain med of trying to just survive this pain. I became a shell of who I am, though in those moments, yeah, I found a lot of things. I found my love of writing. I found my love of reading, but I was still in constant pain. And I was put on pain meds for about seven years. And last year, I would say, I'm done with this. I'm done with these pain meds. I'm done with feeling like I'm not who God made me to be. I'm not the spunky little person that I used to be, the hyper ADHD kid that would run around, drive my parents insane, but I wasn't myself anymore. So over the last year, I tried my hardest. 
And man, was it hell trying to get off of these pain meds. Some, one of them, I didn't know how bad it truly was until after I was completely off of it. I went through withdrawals in the last year. It was so incredibly tough trying to get off of everything. But in everything, thank the Lord, I have officially gotten off of everything. But in every moment, say, okay, God, this isn't me. This isn't my will because you're doing something. And regardless of what you're doing, I'm here. I know that one day, though my pain may not leave this earth, that it will be gone once I get into heaven. And that is what keeps me going, knowing that one day with Christ, I will be completely healed. And though in the last few months I have been diagnosed with another illness, I know that God will restore me once I get into heaven. That encourages me and inspires me just to see her trust in God. That despite everything that keeps coming up again and again, that she makes one step forward and then is not two steps back, that she continually keeps going before the Lord every single day I hear and she prays, God, I just pray that your will be done. God, that you have control over this situation. See, she knows that we have a God that saves we have a God that's victorious, that we have a God who helps us no matter what we're dealing with in our lives to get us through to the next day. And the best thing that we can do is just come before God, lay it before him and say, God, I pray that you just help me get through this moment. And then the next, and then the next, and then the next. You take it step by step by step because that's what this relationship with God looks like. This constant communication, this constant feedback where he shows you the victory that he has already proclaimed that just awaits your life. And I know that's hard. I know that it's difficult when you're in the midst of suffering to have that kind of a mindset to say, God, I don't understand why this is happening or what's going on, but your will be done right here, right now. That's difficult for us to say, but that's when God truly moves. That's when God starts to step in and say, thank you for bringing this before me. He already knew it. But now you've invited him into the process and he can help that healing start. He can help take you to the next place because that victory already exists. The victory that he paid for the cross is not there on the cross. That's like really weird. The victory he paid for in full bodysuit armor, um, which is true, but you know, uh, it's the victory that he's already paid for upon the cross. That his blood that was shed so we wouldn't be held captive to sin anymore. His body that was broken that we would be set free and we wouldn't have to endure the full extent of the brokenness that exists in this world. But the hope and the reassurance that one day we will be able to rise again just like he did and not have to experience any of these earthly things anymore. That's what keeps me going. That's what encourages me. So as we finish out this service today, we want to enter into this time as well. And we're going to give you a chance to enter into a time of communion. And this isn't something that we take lightly. This is, this is something serious. This is your commitment, your, your confession to God saying, God, I'm ready to march on. God, I'm ready to stop being bound by these things that are holding me back in my life. God, I'm ready to move past this suffering. God, to see past the ailments, to see past the frustration or the anger or whatever it is that I'm holding on to and truly march on towards you and your will that you have set for my life, that we recognize the sacrifice that you paid so we could be here and grab a hold of that victory that you so freely give to us that sets us free. You know, in Luke 
chapter 22, it says, and he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus gave us a new life and a new power to conquer over anything that you are experiencing in your life. So whatever it is that you're dealing with right now, God has already claimed victory in that thing. And he's just waiting for you to accept it and receive it. So as we enter into this time of communion, you can come up by yourself or with your families. There's four different stations in all the corners of the room. But I pray that you just, that you enter into this time and you come once again before God in prayer. And you say, God, I'm done fighting. God, I'm done holding on to these things. God, I'm done worrying. God, I'm done struggling. God, I'm ready for something more. I'm ready to march on in your name. And we take of this communion and remember what he's done for us so that we can continue to march on. Would you pray with me? Father, God, we know that you've given us the power to conquer over whatever it is that we're facing or whatever it is that we know awaits us. God, I pray that you just open our hearts to be receptive once again to you in this moment. God, that we wouldn't take this lightly, that if we're not at this spot, that we don't feel convicted, that we have to get up and take it, Father, but this would be a true confession of our hearts, Father, to call it like it is, that we are ready to make that stand to march on to you today, to march on through our pain, to march on through our sufferings, through the fights with our family, through the marriage or the relationship issues, Father, that we would just run to you. And Father, we would say in every situation of our life that your will be done. We pray this in your name.